Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Hey, Jundo, I've been meaning to ask you, what's that funny stick on the bookshelf behind you? It kind of looks like a, like you, you took a bow from, from and cut it in half. Yeah, well, when you asked me just about a minute ago, I actually had a, a senior moment. And that, that's fitting because our subject today is old things, and I am old. So, uh, no, our subject today is tradition. I, you can be, you can talk about tradition without being old, but yeah, that's okay. That's a ship bay, but I didn't want to confuse the ship bay with the rui, uh, which is also known as the kotsu or shujo. Uh, right. Don't get your sticks confused. Know your sticks. This is important. Okay. So, what do you do with this stick? What's the point of it? Yeah, that was another thing. Until you looked it up and looked up the uh, tra- tradition, I, I knew I, I knew uh, some of the story, but you said something. It was it represents the Buddha's arm. Yeah, that's what I'm finding uh, on the web. It says a ship is a staff uh, made of bamboo about half a meter in length and shaped like a small bow. A Zen master keeps it at his or her side in the zendo when guiding the disciples. It symbolically represents Buddha's arm. Yeah, I, I think that's what it was originally. It's, it looks like half a Japanese archery bow without the string. Yeah. And they cut it in half. Probably what they did with their broken bows, I imagine. Ah, good point. Yeah, the, the one I have is beautiful. It's all lacquer, and it's it's got uh, where you would place your hands. It has uh, kind of a rope uh, twining uh, like on the uh, on to hold the uh, bow. Uh, no, it's really beautiful, but I I only know um, one particular use for it, and it's not like I pull it out every day. It's been on that shelf uh, pretty much for a couple of years now without moving. <laughs> um, it is used in our Dharma combat ceremony. Is that like Kung Fu? Well, it's it's kind of a koan Kung Fu. It's Kung Koan. Kung Koan. Yes. Or Koan Fu. Koan Fu. Which is, uh, you know what, uh, Dharma combat. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's, it's two people trying to out-philosophize each other. Yes. Now, uh, not out-philosophize each other, but one presents a koan, the other one gives uh, a spontaneous retort, and uh, no one understands what's going on, and that is how everyone is enlightened. <laughs> That's uh, the famous koan. So the point of the stick is you hit someone when you don't understand what they're saying? No, 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 no. The pony, let me tell you about the ceremony. The first thing about the ceremony, it's an old tradition to have this when uh, a monk in the monastery becomes the shuso, which is known in English as the head seat. And he gets a white sash. It's kind of dapper looking, nice white sash. And as the shuso head seat, uh, he's kind of in charge of the, of the zendo during a, a session period. Now, the Dharma combat, the, the trick is this. The Dharma combat in Soto Zen, which I represent in Japan, is actually scripted. Ah. The reason it's scripted is, first off, it is done in 14th century Japanese, which no one, nobody alive today has, <laughs> you know, well, you know, not, not any of the young people who are doing the ceremony. So they have to yeah. memorize this. Ah, okay. And the answers and the questions are all preset. 
which actually I was very much against for a long time. I thought, well, that's not legitimate. But then, you know, we've spoken about this in Zen a few times. If you put yourself in the role and really pour, pour yourself in, you become the role. Like we said, my friend, the actor, played uh, Willie Loman, Death of the Salesman. And he said, if you do it, you memorize your lines, you become Willie Loman. That's the idea. Anyway, getting back to the shippe. This is method acting as Zen. Yes. Yeah. So getting back to the shippe, the master holds the shippe, and the fellow who's going to be the shuso gets up very formally, bows, and grabs the shuso. Uh, grabs the, no, he doesn't grab it. He's the shuso. The shuso grabs the shippe. <laughs> Nobody grabs the shuso. The shuso grabs the shippe. So he's got the shippe. And this is to show that now he's the master. He's in charge. So he goes back to his seat and he holds it and he bangs it on the floor every time he answers a question. Ask me a question, Kirk. Okay, what time is it, Jundo? The time? What time? Your time, like that, except it's scripted, you know. So right. um, that's how it works. And that's what the uh, shippe is. And uh, we did this ceremony in our sangha once. And then I put it on the shelf and it's been sitting there the uh, last couple of years. <laughs> so this is like a performance. Again, it's a performance, but uh, it's a performance where you you embody the tradition. And that's our subject today, tradition. Why do we do these weird, arcane things in Zen? Why don't we just dish it all and start anew? Well, w before we started, I was asking you what sort of weird, arcane objects you have. And you said, I've got some beads here. But there's been many discussions on the Tree Leaf Forum that in Soto Zen, we don't really do the bead thing. Well, I know that there is an ornamental juzu, which is what is the long bead thing, but it's not like people wear beads normally, whereas in other traditions, like the Tibetan tradition, perhaps they'll count um, the beads on a mala while reciting a mantra, that kind of thing. Right. Other, other Buddhists are big chanters. We're mostly sitters, and we chant a little, but we don't... There are some practices, and some people do this, where you recite a chant, and the beads are basically a counter, which, by the way, are the same beads you find in Catholicism, because they just went up and down the Silk Road. And this is also a perfect example of what I want to discuss today. What's this silly thing with beads? Why keep them? Well, there, Why keep them around? There, there are several reasons. Ask me the reason. Can you give me some of the reasons why we keep beads around? I will now respond to you, yes. <laughs> uh, well, one reason is, first off, they're just beautiful, and it's good to have something tangible. It's been felt that, you know, incense is for the nose. Uh, beautiful chants are for the ear. The beads are not only visual, but for the tactile sensation. It is actually hypnotic. You have more nerves. Check this out, because I tend to, to say things like this. No, no, I, I was going to say the same thing. I've read this, too. You have more nerve endings in the tips of your finger right. than anywhere else, which makes sense, because we need them to... To, to touch, to palpate. Don't touch the shoe so, but you can touch the beads. Yes, yes. this okay. is exactly right. So as you go around, it's mesmerizing to go around with the, the smooth yeah. beads around and around and around. And uh, between the chanting, the rhythmic chanting and the ryth rhythmic uh, bead rolling, uh, you get in a very uh, deep samadhi, deep uh, meditative state. So it's uh, a beautiful practice. That's why we keep the beads and all the other stuff. You mentioned the Silk Road. It's true that all traditions have beads like that. I think Islam uh, has beads. They, they might not be as long. In Buddhism, it's 108 beads usually, but you can get the smaller version, the wrist size, which is 
what is it, one-sixth of 108? There's some... Ask me why the tradition is 108 beads. Exactly. Why is it 108 beads? Because why, why in Lost did the guy have to press the button every 108 minutes? Because also in Lost, nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. But, uh, I, you know, they, they called it Lost because after you watch that series for like seven seasons, you realize all the time you lost. It, it was a little bit like uh, this this thing I just watched with the uh, the squid the squid games. But anyway, getting back to um, the one hundred and eight, I looked this up one time, and one hundred and eight is a big number. You have to be a mathematician to appreciate this. But one hundred and eight is all kinds of mathematical things divided in square roots, and it goes into one hundred and eight. And old astronomers believe there were one hundred and eight planets, or I don't know, and there are one hundred and eight uh, imperfections of the human being we call bono. And uh, there were also 108 virtues. We're just big on 108. It's another example of uh, Buddhism, like many religions, is filled with these old things. And we try to come up to, with reasons for them. And sometimes nobody knows. Nobody knows why these things are. <laughs> this is, I got to tell you the story about the bell. Can I tell you a story about the bell? I don't think you've told me the story about the bell before. Okay. I was, uh, this is a perfect example. So in the, in the, uh, Zen temple in uh, Tokyo, where I used to sit Zazen, every night about uh, nine o'clock, they would ring the bell with a very specific pattern. They're wooden blocks. They'd hit the wooden block a certain number of times, and they'd ring the bell a certain time. Then they hit the wooden block a certain number of times, and they ring the bell. Then they hit the big bell. And I heard this uh, night after night, and I finally said, you know, why? Why are they hitting, you know, the bells like that? So I went to the the closest monk, and I said, I have a question for you. And he said, yes. I said, why do you hit the bells? like that. And he looked at me with a puzzled face and he said, one moment, one moment. And he got an older monk and the older monk came over and said, yes, what is your question? Why do you hit the bells like that? And he got the <laughs> oldest monk to come over. It wasn't a matter of English. They all you know, understood what I was saying. And the old monk also looked puzzled and he said, because that's how we hit the bells. <laughs> Now, later I found out it's actually a clock, like a church bell in Europe. For the farmers all around, they could tell what time it is, you know, right. by the number of rings. So there was actually, that was the origin. But that had lost its meaning. So for all these guys, it, that's just how we hit the bell. <laughs> it, it's funny. When, when I moved to the UK, I moved to a small village not far from where I live now. and. Every Tuesday night at about seven o'clock, there would be this bell ringing coming from the church nearby. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to figure it out. These were actually amateur campanologists who are people who ring bells to make music. And they would practice every Tuesday night for an hour. I love that, a campanologist. Yeah, that's what they call them. And it was this lovely sound just ringing out. So at first I thought it was some sort of, you know, pagan ritual or something. Um, or, or there was a ghost in the, in the church. But then I found out that these were people who actually, they were bell ringers, and this is what they did. I wonder if they wore earplugs, because those bells are really loud when you're up in a church. Town. Yeah, the, the Zen temples are filled with all kinds of bells, but they're practical too. There's a certain bell you ring to say, hey, it's mealtime. There's a certain uh, bell you ring to say, hey, there's a big Roshi, a big teacher coming down the hall. Get out of the way or you know, salute or do whatever you do. <laughs> there are other bells to say, hey, the, the one I love is uh, when we're doing chants, on the last round, you give an extra ring because of, I, and I confess I've done this a thousand times, 
you lose your place. You know, okay, are we at the end, the middle? <laughs> you know, and then you hear the end, you go, oh, well, I got to stop now. Because otherwise you'd keep going and everyone else would have finished, you know. So uh, it's like in track and field, just when they're starting the last lap, someone rings a bell at the finish line. Otherwise the guy would keep running. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I found a perfect quote for today's episode. This is from Harold Macmillan, a former prime minister of the United Kingdom. Tradition does not mean that the living are dead. It means that the dead are living. We have the old koan, not living, not dead. That's a Zen thing. Yes. No, but the point is that tradition is carrying forward things from the past of people who died, but in remembrance of how they did things. Well, sometimes the origins, though, if you really look into them, the origins of things are very interesting. You know, don't confuse your shippe, I said, with your kotsu, your shujo. Right. The kotsu is, so if you've ever seen, for example, um, an old uh, the Korean or Chinese drama, the emperor sitting there and he's holding a big stick in front of him with a little rounded or flowery end. That's a kotsu, which, which means backbone, actually, because it's actually shaped by a backbone. And a zen roshi ah. will also be sitting with a thing that looks like a horsehair, we call it fly swatter, because it looks like a horsehair fly swatter. Isn't it a fly swatter, though? It was a fly swatter, and the kotsu was a back scratcher. It seems, no. Yes, yes. No, I, I, oh, I've come read, on. A, a scholar looked into this, and, and by the way, it's lost <laughs> in the clouds of time, so no one's sure. Yes. But it appears that if you were, let's say, a noble in ancient India, uh, I guess there were a lot of fleas, and it was a little itchy. So the emperor would get to sit there, and he'd, uh, every once in a while, give himself a little back scratch, and the, fly, fly, uh, the flies would be chased away. That's where it came from. Mm. So to be a noble person, you would sit there with your back scratcher and your, your fly chaser. And today we take this as you know, symbols of the highest office in Zen. <laughs> so what else is there? You talked about the beads. And, and as we said, we don't really practice with that in Soto Zen. What other paraphernalia do you have? Well, we have the bowls and uh, yeah. the orioki bowls. Right. Uh, and this is also uh, something that uh, we could get dish, we could get rid of. That's a little orioki pun, you know, get rid of dish your bowls. But uh, is, is that slang translate to the young people to get rid of, to dish? I think that's also ancient English. Really? I would, say, I would say ditch, not dish. Oh, dish? Okay. Anyway, they're, they're bowls for orioki, which is a ritualistic way of eating. Right. And I uh, thought, uh, first off, you know, why do this? Why eat this way? And what's the big thing with the bowls? I, I will explain that. A, a couple of years ago, I was on a, interviewed on a podcast from the Buddhist what is it? The Secular Buddhist Society. And they're looking to modernize everything. Everything. Everything has to be scientific. They're big into mindfulness. And I, my presentation was something I called, I believe I called it religious secular Buddhism. And my point was, just because things are old and look a little funny, they may still have value now. Don't throw out the baby Buddha with the bathwater. Orioki is a perfect example. So we live in a fast food microwave culture, right? You pop it in, 30 seconds, boom, there's lunch. Orioki makes you realize the sacredness of having a mouth and having a world to provide you with something to put in that mouth. So you have your bowls, you open them with such a ballet of movement. All of them, again, like the uh, we said, the Dharma combats uh, ceremony, all of it's scripted how you move your right hand, where you put the chopsticks, how you put the spoon, 
at what angle, when you pick up this bowl, when you place it down. And you must chant before you, you don't just dig in. Even before the food is served, you're chanting. You're saying, expressing gratitude, gratitude to the universe for giving you this food, gratitude to the farmer, gratitude just for being here, and also wishing for the hungry people to have food. So it's a kind of slow eating. It, oh, so slow. Even the French would be bored. Yes, it's, <laughs> it is so slow. And after about 20 minutes, you finally get to the food, at which point people think, oh, this is Zen. I'm supposed to savor every mouthful. Quite the contrary. You stuff it in. You stuff it in. Oh. Oh, boy. You could choke. You could, it is not healthy. You just keep going. You stuff it in because you got to finish <laughs> between the Roshi. By the time the big Roshi finishes, all the other monks have to get finished. So, you, you know, you're not supposed to be competitive, but I'm always looking like, where's the other guys? Oh, okay. He's on the second bowl of rice. I better get going. Yeah. And then they come with seconds <laughs> and they do give you seconds, but you better finish. I one time forgot to finish and I ended up putting the rice in my robe sleeve when nobody was looking because I didn't know what to do. It was, so, I was, you know, everyone was finished. I still got a half a bowl of rice. I just picked it up in a big clunk and put it in my, in my sleeve, which later that was actually became a midnight slack snack. It was a long session, but anyway, it's beautiful. It's when you pour yourself into the ritual, I say you lose yourself and find yourself again. It's like dance. You know, some guy wrote a book called The, the Zen Master's Dance. Wonderful book. Recommend it to everybody. Yeah, good book. I'll put a link in the show notes. And um, it is uh, a dance. And you pour yourself into the dance and you lose your, and find yourself in the movement. Orioki has value. It is a great practice, even for modern people. So is that the origin of the Japanese tea ceremony? Uh, I would say they came from very similar uh, perspective and roots. Because yes. what I find interesting, I've read a little bit about the Japanese tea ceremony, is it's not just about, it's not about the tea, actually. It's about going to a specific room that's decorated in a specific way with flowers, with calligraphy. It's about the gestures. It's about the, the whole sensory experience of seeing and smelling and tasting and all that. And and the tea itself is just a small part of it because you, you get a tiny little bit of, of matcha tea, you drink it. You and then appreciate that's the artfulness of the bowl, you appreciate your companions. But again, every move is scripted and must be mastered uh by someone who performs the tea ceremony until it becomes second nature. And I understand this is a part of Japanese culture because I'm not an expert in tea or Chinese Buddhism. But my experience in China is their way of eating in the temple is much more relaxed. You basically, you're dished it up and you give a bow and maybe you chant something and you dig in and you eat. It is not a ritual as such. So you're saying that this is something that the Japanese brought to Right. And people Zen. say this is the influence of Zen on Japanese culture. And I don't think so. This is, again, many things about Japanese culture that people think are Zen are actually Japanese culture that was there before Zen ever came. You know, the, the age of the Heian period and, and uh, you know, the old nobles, Genji Monogatari, if anyone's into their Japanese literature, the, the wonderful imperial family. These values came into Zen. So a lot of things we think are Zen actually are not. They're Japanese things. Went the other way. And, and that makes me think, um, in Dogen's time, so we're back in the 13th century, how long did it take for Zen to spread throughout Japan? It wasn't immediate. It, it took centuries, right, before Zen really established itself 
throughout the country. It, no, it got it, it spread um, pretty quick, but that's mostly because of good marketing. What happened, uh, at least for Soto Zen, as you know, is uh, Dogen came and he was very much into doctrine and practice, serious guy. And he had his, I think, 12 or 15 or 20 followers in the temple. And that would have been the end of it. That would have been ended. A couple of generations later, a guy named Kazon came and said, hey, you know, we got to kind of make this more popular. So he started doing things, everything from exorcisms mm. to chanting to for good crops, good weather. You know, your son's got a toothache. We'll chant for you. And uh, he went out and he went into the different villages and it spread very wildly. Uh, it really didn't spread, though, until I believe the 17th century when the Japanese government mandated that every family in Japan must join a temple. Right. It was a way of uh, having the priests spy on everybody to make sure they weren't Christian. That has meant that a lot of families are of a certain sect, not because, oh, my grandfather believed in this so much, he wanted to be a Zen guy or he wanted to be a pure land guy. No, it was the closest temple and they told him to go there and his family's been a member ever since like that. And they, and they probably couldn't tell you the doctrines very much either. Go, going back to Kazan, it sounds like what he was doing is bringing into Zen elements of Shinto. Yeah, sure. The sure. animistic and, religion. Uh, and a bit of esoteric Buddhism. You know, the esoteric Buddhists over, over the Zen guys, they got all the flash and the color and the, you know, the hitting symbols and lots of beads and, you know. So, yeah, he brought a little of that. Yeah, in. whereas you guys, you all just dress in dark colors and sit around yeah, all the time. and eat our Oriyoki meals, chanting in silence, yes. Do, does anyone know the origin of the Zafu? Yes, it was a pillow for your butt to sit on. No, I, I know that, but who... Who made it the shape that it is and the, the style that it is? Because originally it was, as you say, a pillow or maybe some folded blankets, and it's developed a particular shape. Is this Japanese, Indian, or do we know? It was sewn by Betsy Ross. No, that is the American, no, the American flag. Okay. <laughs> I looked into this once. I, I try to look into everything because if people ask me questions. I'd see, I knew you I knew you would have an answer for yeah, this. Yeah, but I try to look into things because I, I, I'm not of the old school that says, there, there are some Zen guys like this. If they don't know, they'll just make it up. It happens all the time, okay? I try to at least have some basis. It may be wrong, but I'm trying to literally, you know, I'm trying to be honest with folks. <laughs> the Buddha, when he was sitting under the tree, apparently sat under some kind of grass. My mind is saying kusala grass, which was, I saw this in India. You gather it up, and he made a pile, and he sat on the grass, this pile, because it supports your spine. You know, it raises you. Yoga people, they sometimes sit directly on the ground, and I can't do this because it forces my back yeah. forward. So you get raised up. Yeah. But when I've been in, in China and Korea or the Rinzai folks in uh, Japan, they sit on little square cushions. Right. And we have the Zafu, which looks more like a rounded uh, lozenge shape. It looks like a co big cough drop. Yeah. I don't know where it came from beyond that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Sp speaking of the square cushion, I always find it interesting when I see something, one of these old Chinese paintings of what they used for pillows back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were hard. These hard things. Yeah. Yeah. C kind of rectangular things. So they would have to sleep on their side. You couldn't sleep on your back on that. I guess during the night, they would just slide off and put their head on something else. Also, their pillow fights were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, anything else? Because tradition is not just the objects, it's the rituals, it's the maintaining of, oh, it's all the baggage, isn't it? Can we 
get rid of some of this baggage? Do we have to have all the baggage? No, you don't have to have all the baggage. But I, I get criticism from people. But can you pick and choose? Yes, you can. See, you, you get fundamentalists who say you have to have everything, and then you get people who want to get rid of everything or something. How do you choose what to keep and what to get rid of? I get criticism, just like I get criticism for me on this podcast. Some people say, you're too modern, you're too American. Other people say, you're too traditional, Jundo, and you're too Japanese. <laughs> it's like a needle, and very few people have ever, like Goldilocks, said, Jundo, you got it just right. Yeah. You know, either I'm too traditional or not. So here's my rule of thumb. I don't think we need to keep every traditional Buddhist belief. And Buddhism has constantly been changing, and it will continue to change. And even the Japanese change it. It's, uh, you know, most uh, monasteries now have electric lights, and some of them are air conditioned. It's, things change. But know what you're changing and why. And also, don't throw things out just because they're old. That's what I tell my kids when they look at me. I said, don't throw your dad out just because he's old. You know, keep me around. I'm useful <laughs> for something. Know why you're keeping these things. And like, uh, they, some of them will grow on you. Like, uh, we wear the Kessa robe, the robe on it. Why do we do this? It's, it's just a piece of cloth. Well, your heart can say this represents our teaching. Many other things. We, we um, in, in, the, uh, in the temple, for example, we uh, clean the floors, but we do it in a, in a kind of ritualized way. Why? Why don't we just get the Hoover and the and the mops and just go, you know, down? It's uh, you know, time is money. It could be more efficient because the old way of doing things teaches something to the heart. You see, that it's not about rushing. Know why you're changing things. Yet Zen teaches us that everything changes. Everything changes. Yet we pretend that, you know, this is another story. I, I've gone to so many Zen temples, and I've asked them, why do you do it this way? And their way of doing something, maybe ringing the bell or placing the incense or where they do, is not like the temple next door from the same sect. Everybody does it their own little different way, their own little twist on things. But every one of them will tell you that they're doing it the way it has been for 2,500 years. <laughs> Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? Tradition! I told you I was going to sing that song sometime. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.